New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. There are 116 million people in the U.S. suffering from chronic pain. That is one in three. And if you consider the effect that pain has on family members, the number of people affected have to be well over half the population. Chronic pain leads to anxiety, frustration, and anger. Surgery can help with structural issues. However, surgery cannot help with well-worn, fired-up brain circuitry and neurological pathways of pain. Seattle-based spine surgeon Dr. David Hanscom has devised a program to cope with pain and the anxiety, depression, and anger that accompany it. He successfully navigated the territory of chronic pain in his own life and in the lives of hundreds of his patients. Dr. David Hanscom is an orthopedic spine surgeon at Seattle Neuroscience Institute with Swedish Medical Center in Seattle, Washington. He specializes in complex spine problems in all areas of the spine and addresses both the prevalent problem of unnecessary spine surgery and the lack of clarity regarding non-operative care. Besides performing surgery, When it is called for, he advocates a comprehensive and effective program of pain reduction he labels DOCC, Defined Organized Comprehensive Care, which takes into account the mind-body syndrome. He's the author of Back in Control, a spine surgeon's roadmap out of chronic pain. Join us for the next hour as we explore living a pain-free life and alternatives to unnecessary surgery with our guest, Dr. David Hanscom. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. David, welcome. Thank you very much. It's so good to have you with us. Um, I, I want to have you talk about, first of all, your own background in chronic pain. I mean, you're you, having being a surgeon and then having gone through so much pain uh, in your life and even back surgery in your life. Can you talk about that for a moment? In medical school, we're really not taught about chronic pain. I went through medical school, residency, fellowship. I had really no idea what chronic pain was all about. Between my residency and fellowship, I ended up with two back operations. And I could not figure out why people in back problems had so much inability to deal with it. I thought they were sort of wimps. 
Well, I lasted about six weeks. I had a ruptured disc. I had pain in my left big toe, which is the only part of my body that hurt. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't function. Six weeks later, I underwent spine surgery and ended up with kidney failure, ulcers, postoperative infection. I lost my job at the time and went through an extremely dark period all around pain and spine surgery. It was not fortunate for me, but probably the most fortunate thing that ever happened to my patients because my empathy level went through the ceiling. That was my first hint of how bad spine problems could be. Then I went into practice and I worked very, very hard and I was successful, but I became increasingly stressed out, frustrated, and I didn't really realize it, but I had a lot of chronic pain issues that I didn't actually recognize. When you didn't recognize them, do, do you mean that you just sort of macho your way through them, or what would you do? Well, for instance, there's a syndrome called mind-body syndrome, which is a real physical diagnosis. It's not just, quote, mind-body situation. These, these are real physical symptoms. And there's at least 30 of these symptoms, of which I have 16 of these symptoms. For instance, migraine headaches, ringing in my ears, burning in my feet, insomnia, anxiety, frustration, skin rashes, all these different symptoms I was having, but I had no idea where they were coming from. It was just part of my life. And I did what most surgeons do, which is mind over matter and positive thinking, and just sort of pushed my way through it. And then in 1995, I just had a really bad burnout. De developed incredible anxiety, developed incredible sleeping problems. And by 1997, I actually slipped into a full-blown, what's called obsessive compulsive disorder. And for seven years, I developed extreme pain, headaches, insomnia. And it wasn't until 2003 that I came out of the hole. And it was sort of by dumb luck that I found this process. And it's been described for a long time, but I didn't know those principles. And I had read some books, and I started some writing exercises. I had tried every possible treatment known to mankind. What really inadvertently pulled me out of the hole was this book called Feeling Good by David Burns. And the book is a great book, but what really pulled me out of the hole was that David Burns said to write. So I started to write. Within six weeks after I started to write, my symptoms started to alleviate. And over the next 12 months, things got quite a bit better. And then about a year later, I came across the fact that I was actually somewhat of an angry person, which I had no idea I was angry. In fact, I, one of my first lines to my current wife was, I'm, a sort, I'm sort of a good catch because I've dealt with my anger issues. <laughs> the reality was I wasn't connected to my anger, anger issues. So you thought that you had handled all your anger issues and you were, you were an enlightened being and, and you discovered maybe you did have some anger issues. I didn't have any anger issues. <laughs> I'm serious. I had no clue. Yeah. But I also wrote a section of my book called The Disguises of Anger. And looking yes. backwards, I had every disguise going that I ever did. But I came from a very difficult childhood. And when you come from a difficult childhood, anger and anxiety are your baseline. That's your norm. So you were a master at masking those, masking the anger. I don't know disguise. if the words... Master of disguise, huh? I, I don't know if it's masking, but that's my frame of reference. That just seems normal. So you came from an angry, anxious environment... That's your baseline. You don't know what love really is. Yes. Right? Like, so, you're, like you're swimming in the water of it and you don't recognize the water. Correct. Like, for instance, when I was 28 years old, I had a patient come into my service with an anxiety disorder. I had to look the word up. 
I didn't become a major spine surgeon by having anxiety. The spine fellowship I went to at the time was considered one of the top three spine fellowships in the world. I didn't get there by having anxiety. I got there by suppressing anxiety and detaching from anxiety. The trouble is when you try not to think about something, you think about it more. And what I eventually found out, that anxiety is actually not a psychological diagnosis, it's a pathways issue. Anxiety is a classic symptom of the mind-body syndrome. And the harder you try to control anxiety, the worse it gets. So at age 28 years old, this patient came into my service with an anxiety disorder. I had to go to my medical textbook and look up the word anxiety. I had no idea what it was. I truly didn't know what the word anxiety meant. Then when I was 35 to 38 years old, I started having panic attacks. And I'm going, what's this? My heart started to race. I started to sweat. I'm going, what is this? I had no idea. Didn't have a clue. And finally, I went into full-blown panic attacks. I had to get some help someplace. And that was my first introduction really to anxiety. But what gets a lot of professionals in trouble, or all of us in trouble, is we're taught that positive thinking and mind over matter is the way to go. And we keep pushing through everything regardless of what it does. Well, what that's doing is that you can do that for a while. You can have a lot of short-term success, but it really, really, really fires up the nervous system. Now, now, two things that you said that I want you to elaborate on. One, you said, uh, it, you talked about, I started writing, and I want you to talk about that. And the other thing you said is, it's a pathway issue. So, uh, starting with the writing, you said, I started writing. It was a particular kind of writing, though, wasn't it? With all due respect to psychology, I think psychology is a very important part in our society and in people's lives. But as a different role with chronic pain and anxiety and mind-body syndrome. What happens with pain is that pain can come from either a structural problem, which means you have an identifiable problem with matching symptoms, or it can come from the soft tissues, or the generator can actually short-circuit and create its own pain without even having a source. So you have a structural problem, non-structural, or mind-body syndrome, but your nervous system receives the impulse regardless. No matter what the source is, the nervous system then has its own pathway or has its own system that's going. Right. So with repetition, the brain lays down pathways like any artist or athlete. With The problem with chronic pain is that the impulses come in so quickly, you're taking, for instance, a major league baseball player takes thousands of swings, maybe tens of thousands of swings to learn how to hit a baseball you probably get a lifetime of Major League Baseball swings in about three or four months. We think within three or four months, pain pathways are laid down. Once a pathway is laid down, it is permanent. And you describe in your book something called myelin. Can you describe what that is, what what happens there? Well, there's a fascinating book written by Dan Coyle called The Talent Code, and he takes the formation of talent, and he finds out that genius is never born, but it creates after 10,000 hours of repetition. But he links it to neuroscience research about how the brain lays down myelin. And myelin is similar to the insulation around a wire. And as these pathways are laid down in patterns, it allows you to reproduce the process. Pain pathways are very, very specific. It's a very specific deep learning type of process. The repetition is huge. And those pathways get laid down very, very quickly. So it makes like a kind of super highway uh, neural connection. Absolutely. That's a great analogy. So besides a soft tissue maybe that is causing the pain in the first place or a structural 
something wrong structurally is causing the pain, there's still this other pathway, this highway, uh, nerve highway that's going on in the body. Is that what you're saying? Correct. So yeah, the pain pathway is being laid down, but people in chronic pain lose their sense of humor. They're, they're not very happy about it. And pain is always connected with anxiety and frustration. For instance, if you put your hand over a hot candle or a fire or a stove, what would happen to your anxiety? Well, you'd go up and you'd pull your hand away right away. Right. So your anxiety goes up, you pull your hand away. What would happen to your anxiety if I forced you to hold your hand over that stove? Yeah. I, I, it's very, very painful and burn the flesh. But what would be your next emotion? I'd be pretty Angry. pissed off at you. <laughs> right. You'd be, you'd be pretty unhappy. So they have this carefully. In chronic pain, you are trapped. So remember, anger is loss of control. And with chronic pain, you've lost control of getting rid of the pain. Whenever you have a basic human need like air, food, or water not being met, you become anxious and then frustrated when that need continues not to be met. And not being in pain is a basic human need. So people in chronic pain not only have the pain pathways being laid down, but we found that the anxiety is also a pathways issue. So chronic pain is always connected with anxiety and frustration. What happens, that brings more of the nerve system into that pain signal, so you've amplified and magnified the signal. We're going to continue with this in just one moment. I want to tell our listeners that I'm here with Dr. David Hanscom, and he's the author of Back in Control, A Spine Surgeon's Roadmap Out of Chronic Pain. And if you'd like to check out his website, you can go to his website, back-in-control.com, back dash or hyphen in hyphen control.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm Justine Willis-Toms, and I'm here speaking with Dr. Hanscom, David Hanscom, and he's an orthopedic spine surgeon in um, Seattle, Washington, and he's the author of Back in Control, A Spine Surgeon's Roadmap Out of Chronic Pain. And we're talking about the pathways, the neurological pathways to pain and, and of, that have been developed in our system. And tell me more about this. Is if these pathways are they once they're there, what what happens to them, and how can we alleviate them? Well, the pathways are permanent, and just like riding a bicycle, you can talk to a psychologist or a psychiatrist all you want about unlearning how to ride a bicycle. You are not going to unlearn that skill. 
You also cannot unlearn pain pathways. In fact, the harder you try to unlearn the pathways and talk about them, you actually reinforce them. But going back to the hand over stove analogy is that you've also added a lot of complexity to the signal, so you've really locked in or embedded those pathways into your nervous system. It sounds rather discouraging, but there is a part of the nervous system that's very helpful in that the brain can only do really one thing at a time. We think we can multitask, but really we can't. And what you're trying to do is create alternate pathways around the pathways that are already there. With repetition, once you create enough alternate pathways, the pain switches go to off. You turn the switches I guess, off. I get this picture of, of coming up to the highway and it says, you know, big signs out of order and, and you, you know, detour ahead. And so that's what we're doing, aren't we? Right. You're, you're creating detours on the pathways, but there's three parts to the process. There's awareness, detachment, and reprogramming. And what happens, why the writing is so critical, is that the first step in the whole process well, first of all, I just want to mention sleep really quickly. Sleep is number one. Nothing else in this process works at all without sleep. Let's leave sleep aside for a second. I think you say in your book, sleep is the trump card. Correct. None of this process works at all unless you're getting sleep. With chronic pain, you need medications to sleep. Now, in our culture, we're very sleep-deprived. In Correct. the Western culture, we, we're not getting the sleep we need. Right. So the, the essence of the process is we're trying to calm down the nerve system. And, of course, sleep is number one. All the rest of the book does not work without sleep. So what you do with the writing exercises, which is the second part of the process, is to deal with writing down negative thoughts and throwing them away. What happens, there's three parts to be programmed. There's awareness, detachment, reprogramming. What the writing does, and I've never seen anybody, by the way, get better without the writing. Every physician who works on mind-body syndrome principles has the patient's writing. Now, we've done a lot of um, programs on writing, and especially journaling. I don't think you're talking about journaling. This is you? not journaling. <clears throat> what you're doing, you're writing down only negative thoughts. You're simply throwing them away. And you're not throwing them, throwing them away to get rid of them. You're simply trying to separate from them. And the only reason you're throwing them away is to write with absolute freedom. Because the darker and more negative the thoughts, the more effective the process... I don't want people to crumple up the piece of paper. I want them to rip them up, shred them, burn them. And you're not trying to get rid of them. You're just trying to write with absolute freedom. Because what happens with the writing, you do two of the three steps at once. You create an awareness of the thought, but you've also created a space between the thought and you. That space is now connected with vision and feel. You create pathways by connecting thoughts with thoughts or thoughts with emotions, but you also create pathways connecting thoughts with physical sensations. The process doesn't really start until you start the writing because you're creating workaround pathways. In fact, if you read my book or any self-help book without doing some type of writing exercise, you've given your brain just more ammunition to think. In some ways, it's counterproductive. Now, David, we, you've been doing this process for, for a while, and, and we were talking before the interview began, and you were talking about how your body was giving you feedback Again, and so you've intensified even now, even though you practice this for a long time, even now you've gone back to your writing practice. Say something about that. I've had 16 of these 33 mind body symptoms. <clears throat> and when I quit writing, first of all, my wife goes, Honey, don't you think you should, you should start writing again? And I get more reactive. I, I'm not the same person when I quit writing. Second of all, it's just like brushing your teeth. There's no end point here. It's just like brushing your teeth every day, it's just the way the nervous system works. It's not a major life philosophy. So I've been writing for 15 years. The first three years when I was in crisis, I would write a lot. 
And it becomes just one of those things that really allows you to calm down your nervous system. And there's really no other substitutes. Again, you can say the thoughts. I also will talk in the car to myself, which again is another neurological pathway. So you can either write or say the thoughts, or you can do some visualizations, which is more of an advanced tool. But I just found that writing is, is like digging the ditch. It's like the foundation of the whole project. But if you say the thought, then what do you do with that thought? If- well, it's gone. Oh, you just say it out loud and you just release it. You right, just... but you become aware. But see, it went in through the auditory pathway. Uh-huh. And I don't... So you actually say it out loud. Correct. So you're actually physically, there's a sensation right. of hearing the thought. Correct. And then it's just released. Correct. I mean, you can't... I mean, advanced meditators can do this, but generally you cannot calm your mind with your mind. What you're doing, you're using your body, your sensory input to calm down your mind. And is extremely effective. And I tend to use feel. It, like, for instance, right now, if I start talking too quickly, I just actually feel the chair. And that's what calms me down. If I tell myself, talk slower, talk slower, talk slower, that doesn't work. So I simply feel the chair, and it calms me down. Yeah. David, I'd like to talk a little bit, because in the introduction, I, I said something about how there are many unnecessary spine surgeries going on. And can you say something about that whole culture? The way I was trained is that the surgery is the definitive solution for anything. With back surgery, the definitive solution that I was trained was to, if somebody failed non-operative care, then they, quote, needed surgery. And the surgery of choice for a back pain problem was a fusion. Supposedly, the disc is a source of the pain. You identify the disc, then you fuse that disc. By eliminating the motion in that disc, technically, you get rid of the pain. I'm one of the few surgeons who's been on both sides of this fence. I came out of my fellowship in 1986. I spent seven years aggressively doing spine fusions. And I had some success, but most of the time, it wouldn't work. And I was incredibly when disappointed. When it wouldn't work, it's the, they were still in pain or what? They would get better for 6 to 12 months, and then the pain would come back. Yeah. And I, I'm going, what's going on? I was taught that in general, the success rate of spine surgery for back pain was about 80 90%. When the data came out in 1993 in the state of Washington, a friend of mine, Dr. Gary Franklin, published a paper showing that the return of work rate one year after a spine fusion for back pain was 15%, 1-5%. Two years after spine surgery, the success rate of people going back to work was 22%. Then I started to see patients break down above and below their fusions because when you do a fusion, then you put stress above and below the fusion and the spine starts to break down. I saw one gentleman who had 28 surgeries in 20 years and it all started with a one-level fusion for back pain. I showed you an x-ray of a woman who had surgery done in 1990. She was fused from L3 to the sacrum she ended up in a wheelchair for 20 years because her spine broke down above the fusion. So the success rate of a spine fusion for back pain is only about 22 to 25%. There's no data right now to suggest otherwise. But that's not what most surgeons will tell you if you go in and ask, okay, well, what's this going to fix and what's what's the prognosis of, of recovery? It depends on how you're trained. In other words, I was trained that way. And surgeons are still being trained that way. And I don't want to be negative on a given individual surgeon because they really are trained to do surgery. Our patients are asking for the surgery. 
the primary care physicians are asking for surgery, society is asking for surgery, the patients are desperate. The insurance companies are backing it up. Well, they're in the middle. This, our Washington insurance company just wrote a policy that they will not pay for fusions, period, for back pain. Not going to happen. Oh, now that's interesting. Because with surgery, you know, I'm a surgeon, and I do a lot of spine surgery, but if I can see the problem that is an identifiable structural problem with matching symptoms, our success rate is almost 100%. It's very clear. If you can't see the problem, the chance of doing somewhat of a random operation for something that you can't see is pretty low. Placebo effect's about 30%. We don't even hit placebo effect with a back fusion for back pain. We actually cut down the placebo effect on back pain with surgery. Because you're going to cause more problems, is right. that right? And then so success rate is around 22 to 25%. The reoperation rate is 18% within 12 months. So the reoperation rate is almost as high as the success rate. Right. Then most people, when I ask a group of an audience of what percent success rate would you like before you would undergo a spine fusion for back pain, I mean, most people want 80 to 90% for a definitive operation to be done. I say, what if the operation was 50%? And, you know, very few people raise their hands, but a few do. But reality, the success rate is around 22 to 28%, and it doesn't make any sense. Doesn't. Plus, the most common reason for doing a back fusion is for degenerative disc disease. Well, guess what? Degenerative disc disease is not a disease. It's simply part of the normal aging process. As you get older, you lose water content in the disc. They become less mobile and stiffer but there's no association with a disc degeneration and back pain. So, so, with- so, so that clearly, because like if you took a, an X-ray of two people and they had the same degenerative disc, what would be the difference between them? One might be in pain and one wouldn't be. What I mean, it, the X-ray is showing the same is what you're saying. Well, they've done very, I mean, there's a lot of things that we do not know about spine surgery. We do know they've done several studies showing that if you take 100 people off of the street and you do an MRI scan on them at around age 45 to 50 years old, almost two-thirds of them have degenerative disc disease. But remember, they have no pain. Every day in my office, I see, I see people coming in with sciatica that have horrible-looking spines. They have the sciatica, which is structural. They have no back pain. I've had two back surgeries. My entire spine is bone-on-bone arthritis, no back pain. My son's a high-level, world-class competitive mogul skier. He's 29 years old. Every disc in his spine is completely gone. We did an MRI scan a couple years ago for a ruptured disc, did not need surgery, but when we scanned his back, every disc was gone. He has no back pain. Again, the correlation both from my personal experience every day in the office, my own personal experience, my son's experience, but also the research data shows that degenerative disc disease has a very low association with back pain. So what is causing that pain? Well, for back pain, most of the time it's the soft tissues around the spine. Muscles, tendons, and ligaments can become inflamed. One of the problems that back pain becomes so disabling is hurts. It hurts a lot. It's a very severe pain. The back the pain is low. Pain is real. Right. So it, you, it registers in the brain. Right. So you have a very severe pain from a strained muscle or ligament in your back. And let's say it goes on for 8 to 12 weeks. By then, the pain pathways are in full gear. And it's like a PTSD almost. I mean, the experience is so severe, so unpleasant that it makes a pretty big impact. I mean, for instance, even right now, when I have my left big toe, even have left, like the slightest twinge of pain, that whole terrible spine experience for me comes right back. 
Right, because there was it, a that, pathway that, there. That pathway's there. It, right. it just it doesn't take much. I'm here with Dr. David Hanscom, and he is a surgeon, an orthopedic spine surgeon uh, in Seattle, Washington at Swedish Hospital. And he is also the author of Back in Control, a Spine Surgeon's Roadmap Out of Chronic Pain. And if you'd like to check out his website, you can go to back-in-control.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. My name is Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Dr. David Hanscom, and we are talking about pain, chronic pain, and how to alleviate it. He's the author of Back in Control, A Spine Surgeon's Roadmap Out of Chronic Pain. And David, we've been talking about those pathways and, uh, of pain that we set up in our bodies, those neurological pathways, and we're talking about reprogramming that you you have done something called a course in compassion and the the basis of that course is really connection can you talk about that please well i realized a couple of years ago my pain psychologist that i work with kept saying david it's people getting better not because of the project but because of you and i'm going that's not true it's the project she goes no it's because of you And what I realized, I went through a terrible process. I went through over 15, actually went through 40 years of chronic pain with 15 years of those being almost intolerable. And I was stripped down. I was stripped down absolutely to nothing. And what happened is that all these labels that I thought, that I was connected to labels, I wasn't connected to myself. And one of my labels I was connected to was being compassionate. Well, guess what? By being connected to the label, I couldn't actually hear the person in front of me. So what happened through this really intense process, I became connected not by choice to who I was. Then when I talk to my patients, I'm talking to a human being. Somehow that person now remembers who they were as a human being, not as a chronic pain patient. And start to resonate with that because you're connected with yourself. There's a resonation there somehow, a resonating. Correct. And the problem with chronic pain, they're so trapped. They're so frustrated that they lose sight of who they were. I mean, nobody goes to high school and graduate with the dream of becoming disabled. That's not their dream. And once they can connect with who they want to be and who they wanted to be, it's like opening the door of a cage of a wild animal. You cannot stop them from getting better. What the program does that I work with, it provides structure. It's a framework. It's not a formula. It's a framework to organize your thinking. So as they organize your thinking... It allows them to help them make their own connections to who they are. The book's called Back in Control because they take control of the entirety of their care. Once they take control, it's just a matter of time. To say more about connection, I know that you, you know of a story of Pavlov, the famous uh, psychologist, uh, Russian, I think, psychologist. And tell, tell that story about his healing. 
One of my key, one of my keynote speakers at this course I put on called A Course in Compassion was Raz Ingrassi, who is the CEO of the Hoffman Institute. That's an eight-day process that does about five years of five years of three programming in about eight days. Very remarkable process. But Raz told the story of Pavlov, who's a Russian scientist who worked with dogs. We all know the dog experiments. And he became ill with a fever, and he was going to die. And the doctors pronounced him essentially dead, said there's nothing more we can do. And Pavlov said to his research assistants, go to the river and get two buckets of mud and bring them back. He put his hands in these buckets, and within a day, the fever broke, and within a week, he was fine. He was having dinner with his research assistant about two weeks later, and the research assistant just could not contain himself any longer. He said, Dr. Pavlov, we have to market this mud. We're sitting on a gold mine. He looks at him and goes, are you out of your mind? He goes, look, it says you were dead. I witnessed the whole thing. You're alive, and it was this mud. He said, it wasn't the mud. When I was five years old, I used to go to the river with my mother. I used to wash the clothes in the river, and I would play in the mud. And it was by reconnecting with that feeling of being a kid and happy and carefree, that rallied his immune system and saved his life. And what you're doing with the whole project, by the way, is you're using somatic tools to create new pathways. In other words, you cannot control your mind with your mind. You can't even calm your mind down with your mind, but you can calm down your mind with your body. And you bring this sensory input into your brain, and you connect with the best part of your life. It's a very powerful process. Now, I know that in the book, you, you talk about just the opposite. You, you give an example of a fellow who had some chronic back pain, and he had been a, in the military. And it was something about the helicopter, the sound of the helicopter. So this is, you know, re-triggering that negative uh, pathway. Right, right. The triggers go both ways. Yes. Right. We're chronic. Okay, for instance, um, Dr. Schubner, who trained under Dr. Sarno, talks about a doctor who was shot down in a helicopter in Vietnam. He almost lost his left leg, and after several surgeries, had a pretty good result. Two or three times a year, for every year after Vietnam, he would have his left leg become incredibly painful. He would be in the hospital, had every test in the world done on his back, leg, the whole thing. They found absolutely nothing. One day, about 10 years after the Vietnam incident, all of a sudden he literally fell to the ground, but he was with his wife. And she looked at him and goes, did you hear the helicopter? And he hadn't, but his brain had. So that sound of, hel- that sound of the helicopter triggered off that whole bodily response and his left leg just went crazy. Right. So it can be either positive or not. And you you also, we, we talked a bit um, before the interview about a, a woman that you mentioned in the interview that had all this spinal, she was in a wheelchair for 20 years, and you said what she connected with was the idea of being a grandmother. Right. She had been in a wheelchair from since 1990. She'd had two spine operations that didn't work. Probably neither one of those needed to be done. She ended up bending over about 70 degrees and ended up in a wheelchair for 20 years. And she came into me a couple of years ago. She was smoking two packs per day. She's under 600 milligrams of oxycodone a day. She had a pain pump. She's smoking two packs per day. And I didn't really think I was going to be able to help her out. So I gave her the book. She came back. Two weeks later, much to my surprise, I said, look, if you can stop smoking, we'll talk about doing surgery. To make a long story short, she 
had the surgery done. She did stop smoking. She stopped smoking. She came off all her medications. She went through the process in the book. But what really started the process is that she wanted to be a grandmother. So again, the book provided the framework, but the motivation came from her. So there's something about us going for that, um, you know, happiness or going in. It, we talk about pain and anger and anxiety. That has that pathway. But there's another pathway that maybe can it be as equally strong that's about our joy and about playfulness and what brings us joy in our life. Can you talk about that? Well, a process has evolved more for me over the last three or four months. I've been doing this for 15 years. I've gone through my own process. I mentioned to you earlier about two or three months ago, I went back into the hole myself to some degree. Some of my own symptoms came back, and I'm going, huh. But I also realized that I have big projects. I'll be, quote, fixing myself forever. That's an important part of the project, but pain pathways are permanent, but so are play pathways. And a big part of the project is goal setting. And a meditation that my patients do is to think about the most enjoyable part of their life and try to spend an hour just thinking about that time of life. The sounds, the conversations, the attitude, just it's not positive thinking, it's just reconnecting with the positive part of their life. So I'm not in positive thinking, but remember, there's awareness, detachment, reprogramming, but a powerful repro reprogramming too is reconnecting with play pathways. Play pathways are rich, they're creative, they're in there, they're permanent pathways in all of us. And reconnecting with that process has made a huge difference because people have a lot of success with the DOC project as far as the understanding of it, but they get stalled. And then what you're trying to do with the whole project is to shift your nervous system into a different spot. And words like peace, love, and joy are not part of a chronic pain person's vocabulary. You just get beat down. And at what point do you get to enjoy your life? And if you're always just fixing, 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 you can't really enjoy your life. So I think an incredibly powerful way of pulling people forward is reconnecting with the best part of who they are. And uh, also, in, in when we're in chronic pain, we tend to isolate. And what is that? What's the result of that? It's almost universal. Again, when, you lose, when you're in chronic pain, you've definitely lost your sense of humor. You don't feel very social. You become very obsessive, very frustrated, very angry. And then you're not that... And plus, being, being around other people is somewhat stressful. People have become very socially isolated. And they've done experiments showing that when you become isolated, the same part of the brain lights up as with chronic pain. They've done rat experiments showing that if you take rats that are in chronic pain and you put them with other rats in a very environmentally rich environment, that within three months their pain goes away, whereas rats that are isolated continue in chronic pain. So as you interact with the rest of the world, as you shift your brain away from the pain pathways, the pain pathways aren't gone, but they go to dormant. For instance, I used to play trumpet in high school. Well, I can't play trumpet right now, but I could learn it within three to six months and probably go far beyond what I knew. My trumpet playing pathways are in there. They're basically dormant, but I can wake them back up. I can kind of think of it as well, another analogy is, is reading. Once we learn to read, let's say as a little kid, we're driving down the road and there are all these billboards and we just see this gobbledygook on the billboard and it's, it's pictures and shapes, and, but we're not reading. But once we learn to read, we can never not read that billboard. True. Uh, it's, that's, I mean, the bicycle analogy is right. just another analogy that's very similar. Right. You just, you cannot not do it. Correct. 
Yeah. So um, when you have patients come to you in chronic pain and you can see that there's nothing structurally there on their MRI or X-ray or whatever you're looking at, and it might be soft tissue or it might be something else, and you talk to them about this program, this DOCC program, what happens when, when they don't take it? I mean, a lot of them, I'm not, I don't know how, what the number is, but many of them just don't opt for it. Well, it's a big problem because surgery is held up as a definitive solution. And when I say you don't need surgery or your spine looks good, what I think they're hearing me say is that you don't have the pain. And they get very upset. Or they've been in pain for so long, they need validation, not consciously, but unconsciously. And about half the patients that I talk to just don't engage. And I found out that I have to let go. There's nothing I can do. Absolutely nothing. How does that make you feel? It's sad. Yeah. But I found out that when I try to take a person who's angry and frustrated and try to convince them to become less angry, it really makes them angry. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and it's very, I mean, I would do it. I'd be happy to do it. But it really is actually the treatment of choice to not engage. And what happens when you're angry, we all get defensive and defenses go up. And what happens, it truly causes them to be able to hear me less. But that must be frustrating for you because you've learned uh, one of your pathways is that it's really fun to connect with another. And when that connection is so cut off, it must really feel bad and, and you have to process that a bit I still do every day it's very frustrating and our whole staff now understands this and what happens is that we inadvertently by letting go we have a lot higher percent of people coming back to talk to us but really truly the treatment of choice for somebody who's angry is just to let go Yeah. and the chance of them coming back I've had a couple of patients come back this last couple of weeks that never would have come back a year ago because the very second all of us get try to soul like the next best thing. We tend to react a little bit, right? Yeah. And if you're angry already, then it's a problem. Yeah. I'm here with Dr. David Hanscom, and he's the author of Back in Control, A Spine Surgeon's Roadmap Out of Chronic Pain. Also, if you'd like to be with Dr. Hanscom, he's doing a workshop at Omega Institute in New York uh, called Your Brain Without Pain. That's in August August 18th through the 23rd, 2013. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. here with Dr. David Hanscom, and he's the author of Back in Control, a Spine Surgeon's Roadmap Out of Chronic Pain. 
And David, we're talking about oh, lots of things, but chronic pain. And you've mentioned several times in the interview the Hoffman process and how helpful that was to you at some point and how you continued to use writing. Uh, so can you say more about that, please? Well, the Hoffman process is an eight-day in-house process. They have it in Napa Valley, Vancouver, back east. And it's a process that was developed in the 1960s by Robert Hoffman. And what it is, I call it three-dimensional cognitive behavioral therapy. And what they do is that they look at your life in terms of patterns that are programmed into your brain by your past. And from ages zero to 12, you're simply downloaded with those patterns. Until you become aware of those patterns, you actually aren't who you are. So their whole process is becoming aware of the patterns. You, they have a very organized awareness process. They have a very intense detachment process and just a brilliant reprogramming process. They do about five years of this work in about eight days. I went to Hoffman about four years ago. I had the book basically written, but the book never would have been written without Hoffman. I came out of there like a laser beam. And what it does, it takes your entire life and essentially treats it as a mind-body syndrome. In other words, instead of being stimulus response, it becomes stimulus choice response. As you start making the different choices, your brain lays down new pathways. And they use a combination of visualization, music, art, a lot of writing to go through the process. But you basically learn a very, very intense set of reprogramming tools. It's a remarkable process. And you also, combined with that, you talked about the Hyde School. Correct. And that was something that your daughter went to her last two years of high school, which was very involving in, in all the parents, and, and you learned quite a bit there, too. I think the Hyde School is a program where the founder, Joey Gauld, is a remarkable person, very inspiring to me personally. And he founded the school based on the idea that character development was more important than academics, although academics are very high at that school. And we went back there as a family three times a year. And then the kids themselves have a lot of seminars. They talk to each other, a lot of accountability. But it's a huge awareness process. And I promote high incessantly because I think it's the next generation of education that we have to get to in order to change the school system. And Hyde is H-Y-D-E, just to be real clear. Yeah. Correct. And we develop... It just transformed our family. It just completely changed the way we look at things. Then Joey Gauld, at age 82, went to Hoffman. He started the whole process for our family. So between Hyde starting our family working together, completely changed our bonds, gave me tremendous insight into who I was. It really started the process going. And then Joey went to Hyde, then two friends of ours, then my wife, then I went, then my son went. It just absolutely transformed our family. It's, it's been wonderful. I, I know, David, in your book, you talk about um, there, there's a feedback loop in Hyde where people write down different things about different, different um, adults who are there in the room. Correct. And, and they give you little slips of paper of what they think uh, you, I don't know, need to work on or something. And, and you got 12 slips of paper that really surprised you. Can you say something about that? Well, they had an exercise where they had 17 parents in their room in a big circle. The exercise was to each person write one thing on a piece of paper that another person could work on. And all of a sudden, these stacks of paper started piling up in front of me. So I got 12 out of the 17 slips that said, David, you need to listen. And what's perverse is that one of my, quote, identities was I'm a good listener. 
And I got to tell you, at that moment, things changed a bit. I really had to look at that one pretty carefully because it was not subtle. It was not subtle. I mean, 12 of them. It wasn't just like one slip and, of paper. And they all said the same thing. Yeah, yeah. So what have you done with that? How, how did you work on that? I think it was my first, you know, I'm so, my mind goes 100 miles an hour. It was one of the first things that started breaking through. I think we all get attached to our own wisdom somehow. And I realized that becoming attached to your own wisdom blocks the formation of new wisdom. And I realized that I wasn't really connecting to things around me. I think it started the process of actually going more thoughtfully into the whole process. But it really, it really woke me up. It really did. Yeah, I, you have a quote, and I've, I've used it several times in just the past couple of days because it really popped for me, and it really has something to do with this. And this is a quote from Aristotle that I picked up in your book. And you say, We are what we repeatedly do. Excellence, then, is not an act, but a habit. Correct. Anything about habits, I mean, habits are pathways in a way, right? They're, they're, they're repetitive pathways that if something causes a reaction, then you have a different response. It becomes a, you can either create bad habits or good habits. And so, again, see, what Hoffman taught me is that anytime you're anxious or angry, you're in an automatic pattern. That's not who you are. You're, not, wait, say that again. Anytime you're anxious or angry, angry. you are in a reactive pattern. Reactive pattern. Correct. And what I learned, if you take the word reactive and take the letter C and put it at the beginning of the word, it goes from reactive to creative. And if you think about this carefully, if you're reacting, the way you solve problems is to be creative. When you're in a reaction, you cannot be creative. You're in the reaction, correct? So if you get a little space between the stimulus and the response, you see the different choices. As you start making the different choices, your brain starts laying down these new pathways. They're not only new connections, they're actually new brain cells. You literally can sculpt your own brain. And this is connected to chronic pain how? Well, again, chronic pain is connected with anxiety and anger. Remember, anger is the absolute disconnect. And the reason why I call anger the continental divide of chronic pain is that if you think about this carefully, the pain pathways and anger pathways are so connected when an anger pathway is fired up, your pain pathways are fired up. When your pain pathways are fired up, your anger pathways are fired up. They're, you, they're in a similar part of the brain. Well, it's not so. psychological. It's connected. In other words, I'm not, sure, I'm not sure in the same part of the brain, but think about it. That it's like we talked about earlier that the, you lock in the pain pathways, and that locking in is connected with anger. There's lots of other anger and frustration in life besides pain. So what happens, other frustrations in life kick in the anger pathways, Guess what? Those are connected to pain pathways. You actually cannot get better until you truly drop the anger. I'm giving a seminar in August with Dr. Fred Luskin out of Stanford, basically called Your Brain Without Pain. And Dr. Luskin wrote this book called Forgive for Good. That's the book that came into my project about three years ago. I don't know how it got in there, is when people started getting better. But he did four major research projects on chronic pain, Two of the research projects were with the parents of children who had been murdered. So now the people you despise have complete control of your life because you're legitimately angry. So not only, so you've now given complete control of your life to somebody you despise. So his, his point is that with forgiveness it has nothing to do with the people that murdered your child. It has everything to do with giving your life back. 
they still get to be punished. They still have to do what they have to do. But forgiveness is a gift only for you. It has nothing to do with them. Chronic pain is a legitimate source of anger. It's a, it's a, it's a negative, we're not supposed to be in pain. It really frustrates you. And plus, a lot of the times, the circumstances that cause a chronic pain is a car accident, an employer not being safe, a doctor doing a bad surgery, et cetera. So the hardest thing I have to, with my patients that I cannot, I, they have to do it. If you have a patient who has a complication from surgery that never should have been done, they have a pretty hard time letting that go. But they will not get better until they let it go. Until they let it go. You also advise people to hand, handle the anxiety, even though it is the underlying cause before they handle the anger. And can you say something about why that is so? Well, anger is a very powerful feeling. It's addictive. So there's a sequence of anger of circumstance, blame, victim, anger. And anger is loss of control. What causes the need for control is anxiety because the antidote to anxiety is control. When you lose control of the situation, you become anger, angry. So anger is just anxiety on steroids. So if you take away people's anger, you now are exposed to raw anxiety, which is intolerable. People have a hard time giving up anger because it's a powerful role. Anxiety, anxiety represents a feeling of being vulnerable and helpless. And it covers up. Anger will cover up the anxiety. Absolutely. Being, yeah. So. That's, why, that's why I didn't know what anxiety was. Right. Right? I mean, I, was, I came from a very angry, abusive household. That's all I knew. And so I effectively completely covered up anxiety. I had no idea. So you're saying that we need to handle the anxiety, really start, um, yeah, start with the anxiety and start to calm that down by these alternative pathways, going for joy, going for connection, going for releasing old habits and old thought patterns. Well, this is a minor point, but you can't control anxiety. You create pathways around anxiety. Remember, anxiety is just a mental reflex. It's actually not a psychological issue. Right. Anxiety truly is a mind-body syndrome symptom. So, you, so the more you try to control anxiety, the worse it gets. So what you're doing with peace, love, and joy is you're not trying to fix the anxiety. You're creating these detours around anxiety detours. pathways. Right. Detours. So, David, what you're saying is that we're really learning how to parent ourselves. The medical profession is not going to solve your problem. Each person's life is too complex. So you have to take full responsibility for your own care. David, I just want to thank you so much for being with us today. This has just been a, an enlightening conversation. Thank you for having me. It's been wonderful. I've been here with Dr. David Hanscom, and he is um, a orthopedic spine surgeon in, at Swedish Hospital, neuroscience specialist in Seattle, Washington. And if you'd like to check out his website, you can go to his website, back-in-control.com. That's back-in-control.com, hyphens between back and in. And you can also get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. My name is Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3468. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. 
You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions. Thank you.